Well, good afternoon, church. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. The book of Matthew, chapter 22. You can go ahead and turn to verse 41. And when you have it, just give me a hearty amen. I'll go ahead and read God's word for us, and then uh, we'll ask God's blessing on the word preached. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that we can gather every Sunday and consider the same man, Christ Jesus, and marvel at him. And it is because he is not just a man. He is the God-man. And I pray that you would, by your grace, help me to proclaim Christ and hold him up so that we might yet again rejoice in Christ, the Son of God. I ask your help, and I know that you send your word out, and it does not return void, and I pray that you would use it for the sanctification of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the questions on the U.S. Census, anybody take the census this year? Okay. I, one hand? Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's okay if you didn't raise your hand, even if you took the census. The, I learned that the questions on the census have changed over the years. Some, some drastic changes. So, so there have been questions about birth. There's been obvious questions about marriage. Uh, there's been questions about crime. There's been questions about eating habits. Uh, in the census from 1940, there was even a question about the exterior material that your house was made of. Uh, in, in the results of another census, it was recorded that 2.6 million Americans at the time were flat-footed. All sorts of questions on the U.S. Census. And as a result of things like the census, America and Americans know more about themselves than ever before. And for all the questions and all the census takers, the most important questions have been overlooked on the census. One of the most important questions we will ever answer, maybe the most important, in addition to the one that was asked earlier, what can wash away my sins, is in our text today. That is, what do you think of the Christ? What do you think of the Christ? 
as we consider this question, as we approach this question, uh, let's just recount where we've been. This is the conclusion of Jesus' open conversation with the Pharisees in the temple. He's talked to them. He's talked to the Herodians. He's talked to the Sadducees. And he has answered questions about money. He's answered questions about taxes. He's answered questions about marriage. He's answered questions about life after death. And he's answered questions about the most important of all the Old Testament commandments. And the Pharisees are still gathered there. No one has left the temple. And now Jesus is going to ask them a question. But he doesn't want to talk about money. He doesn't want to talk about marriage. He doesn't want to talk about politics. He doesn't want to talk about commandments, even though those are fine questions. And those are good, important questions to ask and to consider. But they're not most important. So Jesus' question that he asks is the importance of that. This question supersedes all the other questions. And his question is about a person. He wants to know what the Pharisees think about the Christ. He wants to know what they think about the Messiah. And remember that this is Jesus asking the question now. So he's not like the Pharisees and he's not like the Sadducees. He's not just asking the question to try to trap them. He's not asking the question to try and stump them. His questions are not malicious. So he's, he's not trying, and he's also not trying to win a debate with them. His questions because he is the God-man, he is holy, his questions are pure, his questions are free of sinful motivations, his questions are perfect, and he wants to hear their thoughts. I mean, as I read it, I thought, what, what a picture of the merciful and gracious, kind Jesus permitting those who tried to shame him publicly. He's actually giving them an opportunity to speak. He wants to hear what they have to say. And my hope for our, our walk through this passage is simply this, that as we walk through the text and this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, we will walk away thinking of Christ and thinking of Him as He is. Okay? More glorious than the Pharisees perceive Him to be. And we would walk away thinking of Him as, as worthy of our praise and our honor, more praise and honor uh, than, than earthly rulers get, and that we would leave rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, my goal is to do this in, in three points. The first is the Pharisees' answer to Jesus' question. The second is David's answer. And the third is and we'll consider some application here, our answer, the Pharisees' answer, David's answer, and our answer. Let's look at the question one more time, and then let's look at what the Pharisees give as their answer. In verses 41 and 42, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, the Christ is the Messiah, it's the anointed one. So this, is, this would be the one that Israel is waiting for. He wants to know what they think. And he, he wants to know two specific things concerning the Messiah. He wants to know, first, what they think of the Christ. What do you think of the anointed one? Give me your, give me your thoughts here. And he also wants to know, what family is he from? 
So, so whose son is he? Is what, what, what family line does he come from? Now, now, even though we know that Christ, we know that Christ is the Messiah. We've just sung and proclaimed in Lord's Supper that Christ is the Savior. He is our Messiah. The Pharisees, though, obviously cannot see that. And they do not believe that. And, and Jesus asks this question knowing exactly what is in the hearts of the Pharisees. I do think their answer, as we'll see, reveals what's in their hearts. And, it's, and it actually is the precedent for Jesus warning the, the crowd to beware of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy in the next chapter. So notice that Jesus doesn't say, what do you think of me? He doesn't ask that. The Pharisees' thoughts on Jesus are, have been pretty much made plain. Right, so he doesn't have to ask, so what do you think of me? They don't like him. In fact, they hate him. That's the very reason they're trying to trap him with questions and trick him. So he doesn't have to ask them, what do you think of me? Because their actions make known what they think of Jesus Christ. And so it would seem that the heart of the Pharisees and their opinion of Jesus also has something to do with the way that Jesus asks this question. What do you think of the Christ? Why do I say this? Well, the reason that I say this is because he has asked others what they think of him. So if you remember back in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And what's interesting, what's crazy about this passage is, is that Jesus just asks, what do you think of me? And Peter just immediately replies, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't lead with, what do you think of the Christ? He says, what do you think of me? And Peter goes, oh, you are the Christ. And it's on that God-inspired confession revealed to Peter that Jesus builds his church. But Jesus, as we'll see in chapter 23, is not going to build the church on the answer that the Pharisees give, even though it's a right answer. He's going to build seven woes on what they just said. He's going to build judgment on their answer. Right after this interaction, he turns directly to the crowd and says, these people, you watch out for these people. Woe to these hypocrites. It's like the question he asked the Pharisees is sort of reverse of the question he asks his disciples. He leads with, what do you think of the Christ? But they don't say anything about Jesus, the Christ. Because that takes revelation from heaven. And they don't have any revelation from heaven. And the answer that the Pharisees give to Jesus, as we'll see, doesn't even require revelation from heaven. All it requires is 
flesh and blood, not the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what the Pharisees' very brief answer is. It is the son of David. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David. That's it. So the Pharisees have done a lot of talking in their attempts to trap Jesus. And here they're given a chance to speak. And they only respond with four words. The son of David. And they're not wrong. We know that they're not wrong because the Old Testament promises the coming Messiah would come from the line of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 Uh, Verses 12 and 13, talking to David and making a covenant with him, God says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a prophecy of the coming Messiah as part of the covenant that God makes with David. In in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, God's Word says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah coming through the Davidic line. The Old Testament promised that the Messiah would also be a king because he comes through David's line in the line of David. Matthew's own gospel records this. This kingship of Christ is a major theme in Matthew's Gospel, so much so it's, it, he opens the, the whole book with it. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the Pharisees' answer is a right answer. No Jew is going to dispute that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David. It's a simple, it's like a softball question. It's a simple question, simple answer, but it is purely a human answer. Here's why. It's a human answer. The Messiah will be the son of David, yes. That means he'll come from David's family. And because he comes from David's family, they think he'll be just like David. Yes, he'll be a king. But in the answer that they give, they reveal their belief that the Messiah will be just a better version of David. Even, maybe even the best version of David. But he will still be a political king and a military king who will, uh, who will deliver them and, and, and liberate them from the, from the rule of Rome. But still, just a really, really good human king come from the line of David. Still a royal descendant, but just a really much better man. And flesh and blood can reveal that to anyone. People go to the polls with that hope that they would just get a better man. People listen to influencers and and motivational speakers because they think they're getting insight from just a better person. But they're still just a person. And so the Pharisees' four-word response to Jesus' question reveals 
very little about their understanding of the Messiah and actually exposes that they lack understanding because their answer is too simple. Jesus shows this by taking them to a psalm to reveal that the Old Testament and David himself testifies to the fact that their answer is too simple. This is where we see David's answer. This is point number two. David's answer. Verses 43 and 44 actually to 45 here, 43 to 45. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So this is Jesus citing Psalm 110. If, 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 if you can, would you turn there with me? Psalm 110. He cites the first verse. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the most important messianic texts in all of the Old Testament. And it's cited or alluded to in the New Testament at least 27 times. Here is one of them in Matthew, but it's also in Acts 2, 34 to 35. It's in Acts 7. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in Ephesians 1. It's in Colossians 3. It's in Hebrews 1, 13, 12, and 1 Peter 3. It's also arguably the most clear messianic psalm. Psalm 110 is exclusively about a divine king. So the king in Psalm 10 is placed at the right hand of God in heaven. We see it in verse 1, and then we see it again in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He's also mentioned as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in verse 4. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's mentioned as a priest performing priestly duties. Not only is the king in this psalm a priest forever, he's also a judge. Look at verse 6 in Psalm 110. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter their chiefs over the, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And then we see judgment also in the first verse, the verse that Jesus quotes, until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the language of this psalm is so extravagant, it's, it's, it's so large that it's either a complete exaggeration of someone who's just a mere human being, or it's pointing to someone beyond David, and beyond just being a king, just like David. The reason that this psalm is so often cited in the New Testament is because it is so obviously, 
so clearly, so plainly about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus uses the first verse to draw out the Pharisees with another question. You can go back to Matthew now. 22. He says, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. First, he's reminding the Pharisees that David, the writer of this psalm, wrote this psalm under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's that's what he means when he says, how is it that David in the Spirit wrote this? So this is something that the Pharisees would not dispute. That all Scripture is breathed out by God, which makes David's inspired statement all the more weighty and all all, 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 all worth considering. God wrote this through David. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, David writes, the Lord said to my Lord. So the first Lord is Jehovah or or Yahweh. That's why in your Bible it's in all caps. This is the God of Israel. The second Lord, who David says is my Lord, is Adonai. That's master, ruler, or or the Lord. Someone greater than David. And so this is inspired commentary by David, and he's he's talking about two people who are both above him. God, Yahweh, and someone else. And we have David saying that he heard God say to someone else, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. To sit at someone's right hand is to take the place and position of authority and rule and power. Highest authority. To have enemies placed under someone's feet indicates not only ultimate authority, but but judgment and justice being done. So this is someone who God says is taking a position of authority, dominion, and judgment next to God. And this king will do what God alone is described as doing in judging the nations, all the nations, and and, and crushing rulers and enemies under his feet. And no king of Israel was ever that close to God. No, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that David is the one who wrote this, and David is a man after God's own heart, and not even David gets to sit at the right hand of God. The description of this throne is far too big and lofty for any mere human being to sit on. Not only that, but Jesus points out That if if David calls him Lord, Jesus says, how is he his son? If the Messiah is the descendant of David, this would have to be David's great, 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 how how many greats? Grandson. And by Jewish standards, you don't, respect doesn't work that way. Right? So it's it's the son who refers to the father as my Lord. It's not the other way around. So if the Messiah is only just a descendant of David, a normal human king, Pharisees, why is David talking like this? It's because, yes, the Messiah is the son of David in that he comes from the line of David. 
The Pharisees do get that right. But you don't need heavenly inspiration to come to that conclusion. You do need heavenly inspiration to come to the belief that he is someone else's son. That the Christ must be the son of God. And that's who the throne belongs to. And that's who the coming Messiah is. More than a mere king. And more than a mere man. He is God in the flesh. And the one who is fit to sit on this throne has actually already been revealed to many people. Hasn't, hasn't his identity already been made plain in public? Not by David, not even by Peter, but by God himself. In Matthew's very gospel, Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so at his baptism, it was declared from heaven, this is my Son. This is the one that David was talking about. This is the one who's fit to sit at my right hand. This is God wrapped in flesh. I'm so pleased with him. And not only here, not only here at his baptism, in a public open profession, this is my beloved son, but to his disciples, Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. Matthew 17, same gospel. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And all throughout his ministry, Jesus has been revealing himself to be the unique, the beloved, the holy, the perfect, the righteous, the all-powerful Son of God. He's, he's healed lame people and sick people. He's raised the dead. He's calmed seas. He's fed thousands and multiplied food. He's stopped winds. He's cast out demons. He's preached as, as, as someone with authority, authority like what, that no one's ever heard of before him. He's been, he's been proclaiming with his life. He's the God-man. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. In Rome, there is this beautiful palace called, in Francesca, I'm going to, I've really practiced this. I'm going to ruin it. Raspigliosi Palace. Okay. Uh, in the palace, there is this beautiful uh, painting on the ceiling. It's, it's not a painted ceiling. It is a painting on the ceiling. And, and, and people who stand and look closely at the painting will, will have to look up like that. And, and after a while, you know, they want to examine the painting really, really closely. And if you do that, for a long time, you start to get dizzy, your neck starts to hurt, you can't really focus on the painting the way that you would want to. And so, to aid people straining to look at this painting, the owner of the palace put a big mirror 
on the floor or near the floor so that you could lie down and, and the picture is reflected perfectly uh, in the mirror and you can sit, lie or sit on the ground and look at the picture reflected in the mirror perfectly and you can jo- and enjoy it without straining or, or stretching or, or, or becoming uncomfortable. And when we are straining to get an idea of what God looks like, if we ask, what is God like? Who is He? How do I know? Jesus Christ does that very same thing for us. He is the mirror of deity. Jesus Christ, He, he, expresses, he, he expresses to the world what is God like? Look at Christ. He is, what does the Scripture say? The image of the invisible God. And he has been proclaiming with his life, I am, if you want to know who God is, you've only to look at me. And while these Pharisees don't see Jesus for who he truly is, God would give the eyes of faith to another Pharisee cut from their cloth. He actually opens his letter to the Romans, just like this. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, mind you, who was once a Pharisee, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have a group of Pharisees who fail to see, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we have one Pharisee who God redeems, fills with His Spirit, and who declares rightly and writes it down forever and ever for all to see and proclaim. This is the Son of David according to the flesh, and this is the Son of God according to the power of the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Who is that? Christ Jesus our Lord. And so family, it is Jesus Christ that we have our divine Messiah in. It's Jesus Christ who is our Messiah. He is the one who sits at the right hand of God. He is both God and He is man. He is fully God and He is fully man. And and just as the proclamation of His baptism was made plain for all to see, so is the defeat of His enemies made plain for all to see. Colossians 2. 13 through 15. And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here comes the public display. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. His defeat of His enemies at the cross, defeat of sin and death, was made public for all to see. 
Philippians 2, 6 through 11, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is that? That is Jesus because He suffered and died and rose again sitting down at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power and will one day come and judge the world and all the enemies will be subjected to Him and sit under His feet and He will reign and is reigning forever and ever and ever. When the Son of Man comes in glory, Matthew 25, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His righteous throne. The throne that only He gets to sit on. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is Jesus Christ, our Messiah, fully God, fully man, reigning, ruling, judging, and dying for sin. Just as we sang earlier, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree? Tis the Christ by man rejected. Rejected by the Pharisees. Yes, my soul. It's, it, tis he, tis he. The long expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken is the true and faithful word and the Pharisees don't see this their answer is that the Messiah is just a mere man when David testifies that he is not our answer to what do you think of the Christ has to be different than the Pharisees this is our last point in his referencing Psalm 110, Jesus gives the Pharisees an opportunity to answer. Verse 46 says, No one has, was, was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So when Jesus asks, How is he his son? There's an opportunity there to respond. And yet no one does. Because the Pharisees can't refute his commentary on the psalm. His logic is airtight. His understanding of the scriptures is airtight. They have nothing to say. And with that, the time that we've spent over the last several weeks dealing with the questions that they're asking Jesus, all that is over. There's no more questions going to be thrown at Jesus after he's clearly laid out to them what God says in his word about who the Christ is. They have nothing to say. But if you notice, in verse 42, Jesus doesn't just ask them one question. He asks them two questions. The second, whose son is the, the Messiah, the Pharisees answer. He's the son of David. The first, what do you think of the Christ? 
they don't answer. The second question is most certainly important. Whose son is he? But the first, I think, reveals something about their hearts. They, they don't answer that question because they don't think much at all about the Messiah. They don't care to talk about his coming, how they're looking forward to his reign. They, they, there's no worship in their hearts for him. But they're totally happy to answer the standard Bible question. Whose son is he? That's easy. Like that's, we learned that in, 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 in Hebrew kindergarten. Son of David. They're so happy to answer that question. Because it shows they know something. But the one on whom all redemptive history turns is sitting right in front of them. He's, he's talking to them. He, he should, he sh they should be crushed by him. And yet he's merciful in, in speaking to them and they cannot see him. And so when Jesus asks them, what do you think of the Christ? There's, there's no answer because as Jesus will reveal in the following chapter, they think much of themselves and very little of him. The most important question of their life, what do you think of the Christ? And they have nothing to say. And this is the most important question of our lives. We must think of Jesus, not as we would, would just want to think of him. We must think of him as he is. He is the Christ. He's God's anointed one. He's fully God and fully man. He's sent from the Father, from heaven, to live a perfect life and die for the sins of all who would believe in him. We must think of Jesus as the Christ. We must see him as he is, not who we'd like him to be. The world is full of opinions on who Jesus is, but Jesus isn't asking the whole world, what do you think of me in this? He's asking, what do you think of the Christ? And so we must come to Jesus as the Christ. So you don't get to reinterpret Jesus. You either acknowledge him as Lord and God and the Messiah and bow in humble adoration and honor and thanks and receiving forgiveness for your sins, or you reject him as Lord and Messiah, the anointed one, and you will bow later. So unbeliever, the most important question you will ever answer is, what do you think of the Christ? He is the Lord. He, he is the anointed one. He is the Son of God. And because He is, your answer is to turn from your sins and to run, to fly to Him for forgiveness knowing that He will never turn you away if you come to Him in humility and seeking forgiveness of your sins. You, you may dispute and have your own opinions of Jesus and you would be one of like billions of people with their own opinions of Jesus. But if Jesus' claims are, are accurate, if He is who He says He is, the Christ, you must turn to Him in repentance and faith and, and know that if you come to Him, He will forgive you of all your sins. And kids, it is important to know who Adam and Eve are. Hands up if you know who Adam and Eve are. Yeah, it's important to know who they are. It's important to know who Noah is. 
Do you know who Noah is? Hands up if you know who Noah is. Yes. It is important to know who David is. Hands up if you know who King David is. Keep them up if you know Elijah. Okay? Keep them up if you know Moses. Did I say Moses already? Great. It's important that you know who all those people are. They're in the Bible. But it's most important that you know who Jesus is. Because Jesus did what Moses and David and Solomon and Noah could never do. He died for your sins. So that if you trust in him, you'd be forgiven. He is the most special person that you can ever know. And if you want to know more about who Jesus is, you can ask mom and dad. You can come talk to me, Pastor Ant, Pastor Valter. We would love to share more about who Jesus is. He is the most important person that you will ever know. Amen? Amen. The truth is that Jesus has, he really has no rivals. He has no rivals. He has people that pretend to be his rivals, but he has no rivals. And so his enemies will be under his feet one day. And he, 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 he is the eternal son of God, become man to accomplish salvation, and he will one day subject all to submit and bow to him. What do you think of the Christ? We must think of Jesus as he is. And lastly, we, we not only have to think of Jesus as he is, but we have to think of him. We have to think of Jesus. It does our soul good to think of Christ. So the Pharisees' problem was, what do you think of the Christ? And they, they didn't think anything of him. The Pharisees had no thoughts on the Christ other than what puffed them up and gave them applause from man. And, and, and as, I was, as I was meditating on this, I was convicted. May it never be said of us that we have little thought of the Christ. Do you see Jesus asking you the same question? What do you think of the Christ? And my prayer is that the Lord would help us to think much of Christ, that he would help us to glory in Christ, that we, that we would never talk about Jesus in passing, that we would never look to move on from Christ to, to, to weightier matters. It doesn't get any weightier than Jesus. May we never look to, to only talk theology without, without reveling in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't just want to become people who just know stuff. We want to become people who know stuff and, and glory in what we know because it has everything to do with Christ. He, Jesus is the one that, He's the one on whom all our theology hangs anyway. What good is it just talking about things if you're not going to worship and glory in the risen Christ? And so we, we, we ought to think much about the person of Christ. We ought to think about his character. We ought to think about his all-sufficiency. We ought to think about his power, his power. We ought to think about his wisdom, his love, his gentleness, his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness. We ought to fill our minds with, with thoughts 
of Christ because He's worthy of all of our thoughts. We ought to think about His promised return. We, we ought to marvel that He calls sinners His friends and that He's our God and He's our good shepherd and He leads us beside still waters and He restores our soul. We should think about the fact that we once did not know Him. And we should think about the fact that now we do know Him. And that that's not, that's not anything to do with flesh and blood. It's because God has revealed that to us. We should meditate and rest on the fact that, that Jesus even died for every time that we don't think rightly of Him. Not only should we think of Christ as He is, we should think much about Jesus. We should rejoice and we should fear Him because we know that not knowing Him is the most frightening kind of ignorance that you could ever have, ever. And, and we, should, we should thank God that by the power of the Spirit, Jesus is our soul's delight. And when He's not our soul's delight, Jesus died so that when you cry out to the Father, be my delight, the Spirit quickens. That God would give us the grace to think much of Jesus. That's the prayer we ought to have as a church. And if you know Jesus, if you know Him, if you think on Him, you know how to answer the question. What do you think of the Christ? Indeed, I count everything, everything, as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's how you answer the question, what do you think of the Christ? May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to think much of Jesus and little of ourselves. We need your help to be like Jesus and less like our sinful selves. Would you give us grace so that our minds are most occupied with thoughts of the risen Christ? We ask for your help and we know by your spirit that you provide it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.